Welcome to Extraordinary, coming to you from the Robertson Center at Success Academy in New York City. Built for educators by educators, the Robertson Center at Success Academy brings together believers in the power of public education to deliver on its promise. On today's episode, you'll hear Rebecca O'Neill, Executive Director of the Robertson Center, sit down with David Johns, a leader in educational policy. David was appointed the Executive Director of the White House Initiative on Educational Excellence for African Americans in 2013, and is currently the Executive Director of the National Black Justice Coalition. Throughout this conversation, you'll hear about David's journey in education, what inspired him to become a teacher, his path in the education policy world, and the crucial work he's doing in educational equity and justice. David Johns, welcome to our recording booth. Thank you. <laughs> Do you know that you are our very first guest of all time history? In this <laughs> <space>? <laughs> Look at me making first. I no, that's awesome. Like you are very good at having conversations no one's ever had before. And so then there's this that. is fitting. And then there's that. Yep. Uh huh. Yeah. Um, cool, cool. Well, so we'd love to start this conversation sort of where you did, at least educationally, where you did. Um, so would love if you could tell us about that one teacher, right? Someone who really had an impact on your life. Maybe you still hear their voice in yeah. your head from time to time. Yeah. Uh, his name is Mr. Shaw. Okay. Uh, Greg Shaw. He was my fifth grade teacher. He was the first and only black male educator that I had the experience of learning from before I went to Columbia as an undergraduate student. Um, and two things I think are really important. One, um, Mr. Shaw was the first person, adult that I can recall outside of my nuclear family, who affirmed me and my desire to make sense of the world around me. Um, I grew up in Inglewood, California, um, and teachers, when they were being polite, would call me loquacious. <laughs> what that usually meant was it was cold, and I realized this early on, was it was cold for I asked too many questions, often mm -hmm. questions that they did not want to answer. Um, or otherwise, if I'm generous, they didn't have the time to appreciate. But Mr. Shaw um, called my mother and said, this young man has a lot of questions, and is it okay if he stays after school so we can figure out some of the answers? Hmm. Uh, and he cha he changed my life. And so to fast forward, I was a reluctant educator. I took okay. uh, every chance I could to resist the calling that I now appreciate that <laughs> the Lord had in my life to be a teacher. Um, but when I accepted um, the gift and opportunity to help babies make sense of themselves and the world around them, um, I immediately conjured to mind Mr. Shaw and wanting to imbibe the best parts of him. Um, and when I worked on Capitol Hill after teaching, I spent two years leveraging a lot of my acquired social capital to find him, to say thank you. Really? Yeah, he's uh, teaching college now in California. Oh, wow. Um, still very much uh, engaged in helping young people figure out who they are in the world around them. Um, that does a lot with, like, wine and is a vintner. Okay. Um, but, yeah, to be able to say um, thank you to him and to let him know that I didn't have the language at the time to say thank you and to help him understand how significant that was, um, but it was and continues to be. Sure, and safe to assume he remembered you pretty well, huh? He, at least he said so. <laughs> <laughs> 
great. And so you say you were a reluctant teacher. Yeah. That's interesting. Can yeah. you tell me a little bit about what that path looked like? Who was urging you there? Why were you resisting? No one. And this is a part of the problem, right? <laughs> um, so I think uh, I think in threes. Um, and so at least three things are important. One, I am a, a black boy who grew up in Inglewood, California. I'm the product of a black mom who often made miracles happen, independent of my father, who was an amazing man, who is still learning about the best way to um, endure the challenges that are unique uh, and associated uniquely with the experiences of black men in America. Um, And one of the messages that was important in my family and community that is consistent within this uh, kin network of those of us who have linked fates, and in particular, those of us who um, are here because of enslaved Africans, um, is this idea of going to school to get out, Hmm. right? Um, Too often we tell um, black kids, uh, brown kids, non-native kids, kids uh, for whom English is not their first language, kids with disabilities, hidden and otherwise, kids with housing insecurities, Um, the least of these kids most likely to be neglected and ignored, uh, that the thing that will make the difference for them and possibly their family, um, both immediate and future, is if they get out of their community, acquire a better education somewhere else, um, and then live that life. And it, one, is dangerous. Mm -hmm. Um, Just think about, again, the message that, like, that what you need in order to show up in the world fully formed and self-actualized you can't find in your own community Um, And again, the space that you need to acquire the tools to be able to engage in the global 21st century economy exists elsewhere in spaces that are predominantly occupied by white people and wealthy people and privileged people and cis heterosexual people um, and the like. And so I was not, um, while education was always important um, and there was a value placed on it in my life, no one ever said to me, educators do God's work. Right. Um, I went to Columbia University, um, being a first-generation college graduate in Ivy League school again with all of those factors. The last thing that I was encouraged to do or invited to do was to teach. Sure. Um, And quite the opposite, when I accepted the calling to teach, and in particular to teach kindergarten, uh, my best friends called themselves having an intervention. Worried about my, I wish I was. We went to Ollie's on Broadway. I will never forget it. They started by talking about Lord of the Flies and essentially said to me, if you want to do something altruistic like build a school, we'll pay for it. Right? Wow. Um, But again, not surprising when the message that is traditionally conveyed to people that go to schools like Columbia or that they write about on TV shows, again, significant given this cheating scandal that people are talking about at this moment in time, um, is that you go there and acquire the knowledge to take over somebody's country or corporation. Right. Uh, right. What we don't do is what some of the babies here at Success um, talked about today, and it's find ways to show up in service. Right. Otherwise help people um, know who they are and how they can otherwise move through the world. And so a, a part of my reluctance was reconciling what felt like this um, unique responsibility I had as a privileged black man, one who acquired a whole lot of privilege through a whole lot of hard work, but also sacrifice that people have made, including in generations long time ago. Sure. Um, and this understanding that, again, educators do God's work. And then in particular, as a black male educator and as a black male early childhood educator in particular, I could show up and be disruptive in some pretty powerful ways. Really interesting. So, so you managed to overcome all that. 
You become mm-hmm. a kindergarten teacher against yes. all odds. Yes. Can you take us back to that first year? Oh, I mean, yeah. what was young Mr. John's thinking huh. as huh. he's looking at these <laughs> tiny little humans? I one was thinking they're really tiny. <laughs> and if I step on one of them, it's, it's a wrap. Um yeah, I was. I, I think about my time in the classroom often. It was the most challenging and the most rewarding experience I've ever had in my life. Um, it is impossible to be um, enrolled in the process of being around young people, especially kindergartners, and be mad or sad mm-hmm. or consumed with the things that allow adults to um, be distracted and otherwise consumed with with things that are the exact opposite of what make us happy in the world. Um I talk a lot about the way that being in, in kindergarten in particular and the structure and order to the day, the the routine that right. we would always talk about is something that I miss. <laughs> really? Um, yeah, most definitely. I spent um, a number of years before um, uh, leading the White House Initiative on Educational Access for African Americans working in the Senate on the HELP Committee. Okay. And a lot of the strategies that I employed for helping to get the attention of my kindergartners were the same strategies I employed with my colleagues and some of the members, right? Uh, it is, right? Adages are important because they exist and they're true and everything you ever needed to know you learned in kindergarten. Yeah. Um, and so, one, just being reminded that young people are often making sense of the world around them well before we think that they are capable mm-hmm. of doing so mm-hmm. dramatically shifted the way that I think about the world. We um, adults do this thing where we forget what it was like to be a child and want everybody to understand and appreciate that we have a unique perspective and a voice and are doing things like that somehow goes all out of the window. And we just assume that babies are not making sense of things and asking questions and otherwise mimicking and parroting things that we otherwise expect for them to do at a particular point. So to be reminded of that and how important and instrumental the period of before birth through eight years of age mm-hmm. was is, it was and is and continues to be um, foundational. The second thing was just the pure joy of being around babies. Mm-hmm. Um, again, I go back to how hard it was for me to think about the stress associated with showing up in the world at a point in time in which it is dangerous to be young, gifted, and black in particular. Um, but being around my babies and having them like hanging off of my neck or holding on to my legs or rubbing Cheetos on the clothes that I used to wear before I learned that I needed a whole new wardrobe right. are things that I really, really miss. Right. So you got a little dose of that today with the little yes. ones here, huh? Yes. I have some good questions for you. Yes. I love them. Yes. My favorites are always, how much money do you make? <laughs> yeah. You could probably tell them any number. They'd be impressed. But that was the thing that I thought about is, is right, like, how do I... Uh, both uh, shattered this myth that whatever they think now is a whole lot of money actually isn't. Uh, and that the more meaningful thing is that you find a salary that allows you to live where you want to live. <laughs> right? Because at some point, I'm sure I thought $60,000 was a whole lot of money, but not when you're living in New York. <laughs> exactly. It's a whole other. We'll do yeah. you know, financial literacy yeah. uh, talk next time. Um, well, cool. So then, so you have this very impactful experience teaching, it sounds like, and then you went on to do what? Sort of what happened from there? So I, um, interestingly enough, I took a pay cut from teaching. Hmm. Doesn't happen a lot. I took a pay cut from <laughs> teaching. If you thought my friends thought that I was crazy <laughs> when I said I'm going into the classroom, oh boy, you should have saw the looks on their faces in this two. moment. Intervention part two. <laughs> I take a pay cut from teaching to pursue oh. a fellowship with the Congressional Black Caucus. Okay. 
um, because I was also in graduate school I, while I was teaching at Teachers College, and um, I was in a sociology of education program, um, and everybody at the time was talking about No Child Left Behind. Mm-hmm. And this idea that it was going to solve all of the problems that had vexed uh, public education heretofore. Hmm. Um, and uh, for me, as somebody, again, who grew up in California, I didn't watch The West Wing before I moved to D.C. <laughs> I didn't grow up with kids that had access to privileged spaces like flying sure. on Air Force One and things that I have friends now who take for granted. Um, and so for me, it was really this idea that um, I could do so much in my classroom or in the school building to try and uh, destroy myths that people had about Black kids and what they believe they're not capable of, to um, uh, help correct um, people who believe that kids uh, beyond or below a certain age aren't capable of particular kinds of thoughts or inquiry, Um, and otherwise create spaces where equity is not just a term, but is practiced in both um, policy and um, uh, day-to-day practices and and experiences. Um, And so I took a pay cut thinking, you know, this stuff can't be that hard in terms of policy. I will go to D.C. and I'll fix it myself. Um, And I moved to D.C. and realized that it was everything everybody said it was and then some. So I spent um, almost eight years um, first working in the House for Congressman Charles Rangel, one of the greatest statesmen that we've ever had. Um, And then I worked for Ted Kennedy as a senior policy advisor to the Committee on Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions, which sees almost half of the legislation introduced in any given Congress. Um, The first thing I worked on was the reauthorization of the Improving Head Start for School Readiness Act of 2007. (laughs) So it was an opportunity for me to marry... Um, the theory behind policy, that which I was familiar with based on my graduate school experience, with practical reality. And the thing that I think is most instructive in this context is that uh, my ability to sit at a table with people who were uh, extremely privileged and credentialed uh, and had lots of life experience but had never been in a classroom made everything dramatically different. Mm. My ability to say, yes, you're right, theoretically, or... Yes, I read that study too. However, having been in a classroom, things don't work like that. Um, allowed me to engage in shaping policy um, and and to show up as a policy entrepreneur um, in ways that I think few of my colleagues have been able to. Absolutely, so interesting. And so, so obviously, some amount of the sort of political work it agreed with you. Did very different than I think the classroom so. work. <laughs> And eventually made your way to the White House, yeah? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Love place in D.C. Building a whole new body of work there. Yeah. Yeah, so tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so um, I, at the point in time in which um, Barack Obama was elected properly in the way that one is supposed to be <laughs> to the Oval Office, um, the politics in, in Washington changed, and in particular with the rise of the Tea Party sentiment, if you remember mm-hmm. at that time, um, the question about um, government and its role shifted. And so we moved from a place of being able to have really productive conversations where compromise was the goal in the Senate in particular, where it was really about like, what is the way that government can show up in ways that are aligned with our founding principles and Mm. the things that we purport to care about, at least when we think about the images we project globally. That was, you know, one part of this process. The, The other part was... 
how to leverage spaces of influence and politics in particular to connect those dots. Okay. All of that was now off the table. And then the question was, how do we stop government? Hmm. Period. It wasn't, what's the role of government? It was, should there be a government at all? Um, and before I was escorted out of the Senate, I decided to quit. Okay. So I resigned. I took another pay cut. There's a theme here. Oh, no. um, I should have said that when they asked how much money I make. Talk about how many pay cuts I've taken. I took a pay cut and drove from Washington, D.C. to Las Vegas, Nevada. Okay. To help get Barack Obama reelected. All right. Um, and the thought was, this is a way to be reconnected to why this matters, to have conversations with people on the ground, um, to appreciate that a lot of people don't think about policy in the way that it shows up mm-hmm. in their lives, especially the further you move away from D.C. as a center of mm-hmm. power. Um, and also thought foolishly that it was closer to California, so I, I would get home, and that never happened. Um, but the uh, shorter story, we won Nevada. The president was reelected, and he then created— a White House initiative on educational excellence for African-Americans. Uh, and this is significant for two reasons. One, it was the only initiative that he established, and we are n- now the sixth uh, of these White House initiatives. Mm-hmm. Um, there were, before this administration, because mm-hmm. everything now is different, mm-hmm. um, there were sustained support for White House initiatives for educational excellence for Hispanics, Native American, Alaska Native, Native Hawaiians, um, um, faith-based neighborhood partnerships, historically black colleges and universities. And I think there's one more that I'm not thinking of in this moment. Um, but all of this to say that the assumption was that the HBCU initiative, and to be clear, historically black colleges and mm-hmm. universities, the 103 of them, I think, given accreditation at this point, do a disproportionate share of providing post-secondary opportunities for black and non-black people. Mm-hmm. Um, but more than 90% of black people who pursue post-secondary degrees, credentials, or certificates are not at HBCUs. Mm. They are also, again, post-secondary institutions. And so there was no one in the federal government who was approaching supporting cognitive, social, and emotional development of black students outside of HBCUs. Right. And so it was, for me, uh, it was a dream job, sure. right? Having moved to D.C. to think about policy, in particular policy for kids who look like me, and who come from communities like that, which continues to conspire for my success, um, and to do so and to serve this country under the first black president mm-hmm. and one of the most brilliant statesmen that I've had the pleasure of being able to learn from. And, and again, I've been lucky. My first political boss was Bill Clinton in Harlem. I worked for Charles mm-hmm. Rangel, Ted Kennedy. Tom Harkin inherited me when he passed away. Um, these have been good statesmen, and I'm I'm sitting in this point in particular because too often, and this is the thing that I'm most sad about in terms of these babies, is they don't have that appreciation for government or the kind of service that people have continued to invest in spite of the craziness that's going on now. Um, But I led this initiative. Um, I was the inaugural executive director. um, And I'm really proud that we um, created a summit series where students were centered, um, where I got to complicate and disrupt the habit that adults have of solving problems for young people without ever engaging them, Hmm. right? Assuming that we know what they need because at one point we were their age facing (laughs) conditions that might kind of look like theirs. And so we then gather rooms with other adults. We talk with them and often implement the solutions we think make sense without ever asking them, hey, what concerns you most? Mm -hmm. Or what are you doing to solve these things and how can we help? 
And so we created the summit series. We went around the country, um, post-secondary institutions of all types. Uh, again, part of my desire was to complicate this idea that we only celebrate certain types of institutions. Mm-hmm. And there are more than 7,000 different post-secondary institutions around this country, and kids should find the one that's right for them. Right. Not stuff that helps <laughs> compel people to cheat and do all these other things. Clearly, that's on the top of my, my mind. Right. Um but the one non-negotiable is that the only experts who got to sit on the stage were students. Mm-hmm. Um, but it really allowed us to work with caring con- and concerned adults, educators, superintendents, school leaders, community leaders, to then hold them accountable for responding to what young people said and not what we imagine they said. Sure. Um, so I did that work until January 20th, 2017, when it was no longer an option. Mm-hmm. And I'm now figuring out um, from the perspective of an advocate who leads an uh, organization that uh, is focused on intersectional social justice, um, how is it that we are strategic in uh, anticipating that at, at some point soon we will have a government that does what it was intended to do mm-hmm. um, and move beyond the space we're in now? Interesting. And so, you know, one of the things we're trying to do here at the Robertson is think about, you know, you mentioned this productive conversation and the seeming absence of it recently. And I think in education broadly, sometimes it feels that way. Like it's hard to have really meaningful conversations. And so one of the things we're trying to do here is sort of carve out a space to talk about just straight up the right things. So I wonder, you know, if you could get America focused on one thing yeah. when it comes to education, yeah. what would it be? What's the conversation we're not having? Listening to the be? babies. Okay. Yeah, we don't we don't honor that there's not a single child that has to be born. Mm. That there's no such thing as a problem child because the children who are most adept at pointing out our faults and flaws mm-hmm. are simply reminding us of things that we did to them. And we also forget that in the same way that we want people to respect us as adults, that children are experts in, of their own experiences. Sure. And in in any situation, whether it's thinking about their experiences in schools or in communities or in these other spaces that we force them to move through, Mm -hmm. if we only listened to them and not listen to respond, um, not listen to tell them what we've done so that things are better for them than they were for us, which is a reflexive way that most adults listen to talk to kids, um, or otherwise listen to tell them where they're wrong. Mm-hmm. But listen with love, seeking to understand and appreciate, especially when it's difficult and uncomfortable. If, if we did nothing but that, we'd be better as a result of it. Gotcha. Great. So very last question. Yep. We love books. Yes. Can you give us a book rack? What should we be reading? Yes, of course. Um, the things that I'm reading now, I'm reading a lot of black feminist uh, <laughs> and, black and intersectionality stuff. So everything from Kimberly Crenshaw, Patricia Hill Collins. Yeah. Uh, stuff that really talks about this matrix of domination um, and social hierarchical order. I'm clearly a sociologist. It's clearly a problem. Um, if that is too much for you, um, I want everybody to check out for White Folks That Teach in the Hood and okay. All the Rest of Y'all by my brother Chris Emden, who's uh, at Teachers College. Um, he does super um, amazing work, um, and I find myself talking a lot about it in this space. 
Um, there are two um, books that were produced by children that I want to encourage everybody to pick up. Um, the first is called Agents of Change, uh, written by Joshua uh, and Jeremiah. Um, they're two brothers, literally and figuratively, <laughs> and wrote a book about, in their words, spending, saving, and sharing. Wow. Um, you heard me talk about it in our presentation because we did some work together in the White House. I'm really challenging this idea that uh, teachers um, think that black kids don't like to read. Mm -hmm. uh, really, the issue is they don't like to read stuff that's not reflective of their own experiences. <laughs> Shout out to Marley Diaz and the Thousand Black Girls Book Project. Um, but not to be outdone, Joshua and Jeremiah's uh, younger sister, Jordan, the boss of the family, wrote a book called Princess for a Day <laughs> um, about the experiences of young girls in the child welfare system. Oh, wow. Um, and wanting them to know that in spite of the social conditions that we've created that they have to experience and endure, that they are princesses, um, if only for a day. Um, so the connection there is that uh, Jordan uh, threw a spa party. She didn't want a birthday party for herself. After learning about the experiences of girls in foster care in Rochester, she hosted a spa party, um, invited girls in the neighborhood. They passed around mirrors. They got spa treatments. <laughs> they uh, talked about college-going plans. Um, and we love the idea so much, we replicated it in the White House. Oh, um, and so everybody should um, read that book. Um, and then the last book that um, I go back to a lot in this space is Gloria Latting Billings, The Dream Keeper. There in particular, um, she has a list of charges. Um, they're in my presentation um, tonight, but things that uh, we should all accept as axioms of truth. Mm. Um, and two of them that are incredibly important uh, is one, believing that all of our babies are geniuses and are capable of learning. Um, so it is a version of what Asa Hilliard reminds us, which is that I've never met a child, in particular a black child who is not a genius, and there's no secret to how we support them. <laughs> we first acknowledge them as human, which too often we don't do, um, and we second support them with love. Um, and the Second point related to that is that uh, part of showing up in love as educators is accepting that education is political by nature. Um, it is, and we are shaped by context and environment. Um, and especially now at a point in time in our geopolitical and economic environments uh, where fear and ignorance often inform the decisions that people are making, it's incredibly important for us to appreciate that we owe everything to our babies. Um, and so the tendency now is to, to celebrate those who are resilient enough to get by in spite of. Mm -hmm. um, it's to have ceremonies for um, the babies who um, dodge bullets and find ways to avoid the traps that have been set for them. Uh, and I want us to shift that. Um, it's important to celebrate our babies um, especially those who face unique challenges. But it's also important for us to set them up for success um, and to really honor that we have the obligation to leverage our privilege to dismantle the barriers that make it harder for them to do the things that we have invited them to do and demand of them. Um, and so I hope that those threads are, for me, I know they're consistent in all of those books, mm -hmm. um, but I hope they're helpful and instructive for others as well. Well, thank you so much, David John. So fun to be with you. This is good. People can't see it, but I'm doing my happy dance in this chair. It's really good. Yeah. You have your Instagram. I did put it on my Instagram. People should follow me at Mr. David John. Yes. Excellent. Okay. Thank you. Awesome. <laughs> see y'all later. Thanks again for joining us for Extraordinary, coming to you from the Robertson Center at Success Academy in New York City. If you'd like to keep up with David Johns' work 
You can follow him on Instagram and Twitter at Mr. David Johns. If you'd like to learn more about the events, programs, and ideas we're sharing at the Robertson Center, check us out at www.successacademies.org slash Robertson Center. Connect with us on Twitter at RobertsonCTRSA and on Instagram at Robertson Center. Extraordinary was brought to you today by Samantha Williams and her team at the Robertson Center, with additional production by Stephen LaRosa and me, Joseph Fridman. Our theme song was by Stephen LaRosa. Special thanks to the Robertson Foundation for their support, and to every single educator and lover of books we meet in our work. Thank you for what you do, and we hope you join us next time.